Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we explore how so many modern families are created today and share the great lengths people go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by EMD Serono, a leader in the fertility space for more than 20 years, helping couples throughout the fertility journey. They were there for the first IVF baby and more than 3 million since then. Ariel Taylor had her first pregnancy and child in her early 20s and realized soon after that that she not only loved being pregnant, but that she loved being a mother and couldn't bear the thought that some people who wanted to become parents wouldn't be able to, either because of their infertility or because they didn't have the anatomy to create it or deliver a baby themselves. So in 2015, Ariel decided to become a gestational surrogate for the first time helping a couple in her area who were going through secondary infertility. Since then, she's been a surrogate four times and is getting ready to announce her next surrogacy soon. She's also been an egg donor five times, and she started her popular infertility therapy practice just this year. Essentially, she's given her life to this. I just realized that this is a a group of people that are chronically unsupported in government, unsupported in maternal mental health, unsupported in their family planning, right? And somebody's got to do something about it. And it might as well be me. Ariel has shared that, quote, there are many things in my life that I am proud of, but being a surrogate is at the top of my list. No matter how you become a parent, surrogacy, donor, step, adopted, foster, or naturally. Your family is beautiful, and you are so deserving of love and happiness. Well, amen to that, Ariel. I'm so happy to have you on the Pregnant Podcast, and it's especially timely now because we learned about a crazy personal connection uh, as I was booking you on the show, which we will get into later in the episode. So thank you so much for being here. Hi, Andrea. I am so excited to finally meet you again. When I found out that we have this weird connection to each other, I was so excited. So I am so excited to be here and talk about something that I love to talk about. I love it. And so when when people meet you, how do you describe yourself in a nutshell? Because you do so much, but how would you describe it? Oh gosh. You know, I think when normal people meet me, I'll just be like, you know, Hey, I'm Ariel. And then my fiance jumps in and is like, actually she's all this cool stuff that you have no idea about. So I am a fertility therapist. Now I am a registered social worker. I am an advocate. I'm an educator. I am also, of course, a surrogate and an egg donor, and I've really dedicated my life, my studies, my social media to educating about surrogacy, supporting the infertility community, and making sure people know they are not alone in all of this. Yes, that's so important. And that's part of why I launched Pregnantish, because this experience can be not only like the Wild West to navigate, which we both know. You would think you're doing it for the first time and no one's done it when you undergo some of these steps. Oh, yes. It's it's also highly sensitive, emotional, overwhelming, and isolating for too many people. So when someone looks at your profile of being a compassionate surrogate, which we'll go into what that really means, many times, and now an egg donor and an infertility therapist, it begs the question, 
why do you feel you have this uh, calling? It really sounds like a calling to help people build their families. Well, you know, so much of it really fell in my lap, so to speak. My surrogacy journey started shortly after my daughter was born. And admittedly, I think like most surrogates, I was not well-researched. I didn't understand the world of surrogacy. I signed up with an agency. And before I knew it, I was matched with parents and getting ready to transfer. I didn't know as much as I would advise other people to research now. Since my first surrogacy, I've, of course, I've delivered three beautiful little boys for two different families. I've also been a donor five times. I just think it's so important when people come to my social media or come to my page to see that I have been on both sides of this, right? I support intended parents through my therapy practice, but I also have been through the fertility treatments. I've done the injections, right? I've done the medication. I've been with the mood swings and the low mood and everything that comes with all of these hormone medication. You know, my family has been through this. We've been through this, even if it wasn't for us. It's so incredible. I mean, what do you think brought you to this calling? I know in the intro I talked, you know, we found this great quote where you feel that everyone's deserving of a family. Is that why? Like, was it kind of a spiritual calling for you? What do you think (laughs) has motivated this? Well, I think I, I did enjoy being pregnant. You know, I had my daughter. I enjoyed pregnancy. I planned a home birth. I love everything about birth. I, of course, have ended up having three C-sections and a V-back thrown in there too. So I never did actually get that. Well, I did get one of the births I guess I wanted, but I love everything pregnancy and birth. And so surrogacy seemed like a really good avenue for me, right? And then I just realized every all the deeper layers that go into surrogacy, right? And the infertility. And then I really started connecting with intended parents. And I just realized that this is a, a group of people that are chronically unsupported in government, unsupported in maternal mental health, unsupported in their family planning, right? And somebody's got to do something about it. And it might as well be me. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think I know as an intended parent myself, who of course, finally had my baby after close to a decade trying to carry on my own, and then my first cousin delivered my daughter. I know how unsupported we feel. Uh, And sometimes, you know, in my case, uh, we delivered the baby, even though I'm Canadian, like, like yourself, uh, originally, we delivered our baby in New Jersey, the the hospital we delivered at had never had a surrogacy birth. So here we are educating them in real time as they're calling my first cousin, the mom. I'm, oh, I think yes. surrogate mom is a terrible term, by the way. I agree. I, I agree. I can't stand it. And, and triggering for people. So I'm glad you agree with that. But the hospital was saying to me, and in a way, I can't blame them. They didn't know. But, you know, they were saying, well, we're going to have to check with the mom if you're allowed in the room. And I'd say to them, I am the mom. Not only am I allowed in the room, I have to be in the room because the minute she... My daughter takes her first breath. She's in my custody. We have legal paperwork. So it's really not a choice. This is not an adoption, even though we had to go through crazy steps to align the paperwork. But there's just so much that where you feel unsupported and triggered and people are doing their best, they just don't know. So an education platform like you have, and hopefully that pregnantish is, I mean, all of these things, There's never, and we've heard this from patients time and time again, 
there's no such thing as too much information. <laughs> there's no true. such thing as too much support because <laughs> this is a highly underserved area. So I know you're committed in your support and education to breaking down misconceptions, thankfully, about surrogacy and infertility, <laughs> which I so appreciate as someone, as an intended parent. But what do you think uh, are some of the, I could tell you the misconceptions I've heard. What do you see as some of the biggest misconceptions about surrogacy? I think <laughs> I think the misconceptions go so much broader than even surrogacy, right? It's infertility, it's why people even need surrogates, it's how fertility or these treatments even work. I will tell you, Andrea, I just started a TikTok account recently, okay? And I primarily operate on Instagram and it's been wonderful to me. But I recently kind of got on TikTok. And actually a few days ago, I had a video go completely viral. It hit over a million views in I think a week. And now my TikTok is blowing up and I am realizing all of these people have zero idea about how surrogacy or egg donation work. So, oh my gosh, some of the crazy misconceptions that I've seen, and you are not even going to believe this, but as far as donor conception, because that's what I've been documenting most recently, the number of comments on TikTok, especially from people assuming that people use donors to get eggs and breed babies in order to abuse them. I was appalled. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Oh, I was shocked. And I... I'm very, I'm someone that my, my platform is there to educate, to inform in a professional way. Like I am a professional in this community. So I am very kind and educational in all of my responses. TikTok I find can be a little unkind sometimes, but I do my best to kind of squash these misconceptions. You know, someone else tried to tell me that or tried to tell somebody else on my page that it costs $20,000 an egg to have an egg donor. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Somebody else said that, that it's, it's gross that women are just taking out their own eggs and selling them on the black market. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't oh. think these people know how an egg retrieval works, but you can't just take your own egg out and make an embryo in your basement to sell to people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, Ariel, most people don't know how babies are made. So how can right. we... You know, like we did something a few years ago asking, man, like a man on the street, I put a mic in people's faces. How, how are babies created? People don't even know about the ovulation window. They don't know what an embryo is. <laughs> so. Yeah. Someone else told me, uh, someone told me because my, my latest retrieval was actually a split donation for two different couples and I retrieved 38 eggs. And somebody in my comments said that I'm now going to go into menopause 38 months sooner because I just lost 38 periods and now I'm going to go into menopause. <laughs> How do you even respond to this? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think people are joking and then I'm like, oh no, okay, we have to actually educate. And you know, TikTok is definitely a younger crowd, right? And I think that's great. What an opportunity to educate a group of people that statistically one in six of these people are going to need fertility treatments, are going to struggle with infertility. One in four are probably going to have a miscarriage at some point. Like this is the group to educate. It is. I mean, what's interesting, Ariel, is that in the United States, the statistic is one in eight couples will go through it. In Canada, it's one in six. I think it's closer to one in six everywhere. I think it's even more than that. I, I, even more because don't you find 
every time you tell someone what you do, they have a story themselves or their best friend or their sibling or their neighbor. Like it is an epidemic, a silent epidemic. Yes. And I completely agree. I also think so much of our statistics are based on what are they classifying as infertility? What are they classifying at? Like you have to have a diagnosis. I will tell you, for example, for miscarriage, they say that one in four people have miscarriages. Did you know that miscarriage is only recorded after a confirmed heartbeat has been identified? So all of those people that go through their early pregnancy only to find out that that baby did not have a heartbeat or it wasn't confirmed by an ultrasound, they are not counted in that statistic. The same goes for infertility rates, right? Infertility is basically said that trying unsuccessfully for 12 months and not achieving pregnancy. And we both know that infertility has so much more to do that with just that, right? Let's talk about undiagnosed endometriosis, undiagnosed PCOS, women going their entire 20s on birth control to regulate their periods and then finding out at 30 that they are unable to have children and not being diagnosed in their early 20s. This is what they should be teaching in sex ed, quite frankly. 100%. And a lot of the times our infertility issues, we had hints of it earlier. We just didn't understand it. I, I often talk about how at 14 years old, a doctor put me on the pill because I would be out of school with menstrual cramps and pain and uh, heavy, heavy periods. He suspected I had endometriosis. So this Band-Aid was put on me. And uh, then years later, surprise, I have endo and fibroids and all these issues. Why was it, again, the Wild West? I think this generation, we understand we have to be proactive with our health and ask the questions and demand the answers so that we don't end up how I ended up take on this 10-year cycle to meet my baby when at 14, I knew there was an issue. So in terms of all of the work that you're doing, which is so incredible, I mean, I can't stress that enough, both as a, a donor and as a gestational carrier, which for those who don't know means you're delivering, I think a, another huge misconception is that you're giving away your own biological baby to a couple when you're a surrogate, but as a gestational carrier, you're carrying the embryo of another couple or person. When did you decide to become a therapist focusing on this topic? <laughs> because you had already done so much to help help this community. So my educational background, <laughs> I'm one of those people that was probably, you know, destined to always be in school for the first time in a bit. I am not in school right now, but I want to go back for a master's. You know, a PhD is definitely in my future. My first degree was in childhood developmental studies, and then I did a large focus I'm very, very close to getting a minor, but I didn't actually get the minor in thanatology and death and dying studies, specifically around traumatic loss. And I did a lot of work on miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, all of that kind of stuff. That was my first degree that I got right out of high school. And I think like a lot of people that go to university right out of high school, I never used it. <laughs> and I worked for a couple of years. I got married. I had my daughter. I got divorced <laughs> all before I was 25. And then, you know, I kind of hit a low spot in my life where I just realized I wanted more out of this life. I just, I wanted to be better than the person I was. And that kind of involved going back to school. And so I did. 
Social work has always kind of been in the back burner of my education. I did a lot of social work courses in my first years of university. So I had quite a few prerequisites. So I contacted my school. I actually applied two days before the deadline, got all of my references, typical aerial fashion here. I got uh, everything done in two days. I was waitlisted. This program only accepts, I think, 48 students out of hundreds of applicants. And so I was accepted pending that I had four courses that I had to update, four full university courses. I did them all in intercession. I did four university courses in eight weeks. (laughs) I had to get over 80% in all of them to get accepted. I ended up getting accepted to the program. I love everything about social work. And the, the nice thing about this program that I did, I did my education through King's and I adore this school and this college. I really focused so much of my education on assisted reproduction. And I was so supported by all of my teachers and my education that, you know, if we had a family therapy course, I wrote my papers and did my projects on donor conceived children. In an advocacy course that I took, you know, we wrote letters to our MPs about better and more inclusive laws and changes to the Assisted Human Reproduction Act in Canada. I did reviews of the Assisted Human Reproduction Act in full presentations like Like this was my education. And then of course the pandemic hit right through my schooling and everything switched to online. And historically, you know, counseling wasn't done online. It was always in person because that was safer. It was more confidential. And then we hit a pandemic where everything went virtual. This is where my line of work really took a turn right at the kind of beginning of my social work education. And I just graduated in the spring of 2021. I moved everything online for all of my classes. Originally, I was actually going to go in and do adolescent therapy. I really wanted to work with the family court system, actually, and work with teenagers and kids going through family court. That was kind of my game plan, actually, especially with my childhood kind of developmental background. And then my Instagram took off and I had an early post um, of my daughter holding up a sign saying that we were having a baby that wasn't ours. And it got picked up by a lot of media. It went viral. And then my Instagram blew up and then everything went virtual. And I said, oh my gosh, you know who needs specialized therapy? The fertility community. And so, you know, in August, when I uh, became registered with the College of Social Workers, I launched my company and I launched my private practice and I do a hundred percent virtual counseling, which is unheard of. This is the first generation, the first year of people that really can have fully virtualized, specialized care. And I can be, I can be, you know, used from anywhere because it's virtual. So that really fell in my lap. That is incredible. Telehealth has just exploded, uh, you know, through the pandemic. And for many of us, what a relief to be able to access someone like you. You're in uh, London, Ontario, Canada. That's an area that many people over here haven't even heard of. But with the computer, it doesn't matter because you're, you're right there next to them. So th- that is amazing. Now, are you remarried? I think you are. And how did you meet and how did you tell your current partner about this work you do? (laughs) So I'm not married yet. We are engaged. We'll have been engaged for one year on Christmas Day this year. Congratulations. (laughs) So we met, oh gosh, like five or 
five years ago or so. So he's kind of been around and we've been together. Uh, we're coming up on four years that we've been together. He has three children from previous relationships. I have one daughter. So we are a very busy, crazy, blended family. I think this is another reason, right? That I'm just like, you know what? It does not matter how your family comes to you. I, 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 I love all the kids that I have and it doesn't matter if I gave birth to them just like somebody can love their daughter that they didn't give birth to. I think there's just so many ways to make a family and Brandon has been, oh gosh, he is just the most supportive and like loving per I could like cry just talking about him. Honestly, I'm, I'm obsessed with him, but he just is an incredible person. And he just, he takes on so much, you know, surrogacy is a sacrifice. There is a reason that a support system is crucial when you are a surrogate. It's a reason you go through psychological evaluations to make sure that you have support because this is hard, right? I've gone through, we've been through three pregnancies together, none of which were for ourselves. (laughs) We do not have children together. We do not plan on having children together. Our family is a hundred percent complete. He's been through so much with me and he's been amazing. He'll feel the baby kicks and he gives me foot rubs and he's been there for all the births and he does all the childcare and he does all the bus runs. And he really has been the most incredible thing. I could not have done anything I have done in the last four years if it wasn't for him. You know, he supported our whole family so I could go to school for three years. This is actually, <laughs> it's very funny because our, our life and our relationship has changed drastically in the last couple of months because for the first time in our entire relationship, I am now working, <laughs> which is very different than now, you know, having both people working full time. We both have careers, so it's juggling all of that. But honestly, I couldn't imagine doing life with anybody else but him. And he's just been incredible. Bless his heart. I mean, I think that's a very good point that many people don't consider when we look at third-party reproduction, how a person's network family is deeply affected by this. So it's not just, it truly takes a village to make some of these babies. It's not just the intended parents who have to navigate the greater network. Like we need embryologists, we need, we need doctors, we need family support, but it's the the donors, the surrogates who also need all of that. And one thing that I was very grateful for when I learned about third-party reproduction, we've talked a lot about this on Pregnantish, the mental health aspect of needing, requiring therapy uh, for all who are touched by this is just so smart. I imagine in the past, or in some countries, maybe that's not needed, but it's so needed, right? Yes, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's funny because in, in almost all contracts, counseling is a listed expense that you can be reimbursed for. And it is very underutilized. And I'm realizing in Canada, especially now the States is a little bit different. I, I am the first to admit here that I do not love all of the laws in Canada. I don't think they're inclusive. I don't think the regulations for surrogacy are as strict as they should be. I think we should follow more of the U.S. guidelines, specifically the American Society of reproductive medicine. When I counsel and advise people and when I talk about surrogacy, I am always using those guidelines. They are researched. They are well-practiced. That is regardless of the fact that reproductive endocrinologists, they make their own set of rules you know, across the board of what they will allow. But I always stick to the research guidelines and what they say. But I do think that mental health is important for surrogates. And I, I have noticed that there is not a lot of 
specialized support, agencies, clinics, all of this stuff across the board, everybody who is involved in surrogacy, you know, they, they should be employing registered social workers, you know, not just support people without experience, right? You know, you should be hiring somebody. I have six years of, of university education dedicated to this. The last two years, very, very specifically dedicated to, you know, assisted reproductive technology research. I'm well-versed in this. I have a lot of experience and a lot of education. And I think when agencies, clinics can hire these people to be support, that's where we can really give people the best, you know, mental health support that they deserve. Yes, there's no question about that. And again, there's no such thing as too much when you're going through such a hard time. I wanted to take a brief moment to thank today's episode sponsor, EMD Serono, who has been a leader in the fertility space for more than 20 years. EMD Serono has longstanding commitment to the infertility community, offering patients resources, medications, and support. Today, EMD Serono continues to prioritize patients on their fertility journey with various support options, from financial assistance and access to contacting live support staff. And their newly evolved Fertility Lifelines program helps those navigating their fertility treatment options, making it easier for patients to determine their eligibility for medication savings by improving the financial assistance process and access for eligible patients. For more, visit fertility.com. We're speaking to you. It's so interesting that that you've just recently had an egg retrieval and you did a egg donation cycle for two couples. I have to share that. <laughs> I wild. You, well, this is wild. I, you know, we followed each other probably for a few years now. We launched Podnash five years ago. So we, we found each other a few years ago and on, on social. And I saw that you were doing a shared donation, helping a female uh, male couple and two gay dads. I had no idea that one of these dads was my cousin in Hungary. (laughs) What are the odds of this? I mean, this is more than a small world connection. And so... And your daughter and I have the same name. So that's cool. Yeah. Not only do my daughter and you have the same name, my cousin Peter has the same name as my dad. And everything in my journey kept pointing to my grandmother, which, which is like where we all get sometimes, you know, I'm a firm believer in science, but there's a little magic and spirituality that touches us sometimes on this journey. And I can't even tell you how many things point to my grandmother. So Peter, who you've donated eggs to and his partner Zoltan in Hungary, random, Peter is the cousin of my grandmother. And my cousin Alana, who delivered my baby, is the granddaughter, as I am, of our grandmother, named after our grandmother. And there are all these patterns that are beyond comprehension for me. But anyway, so that's our small world story. But before we kind of talk more about that, egg donation seems like a very different choice. And maybe I'm wrong in that, but I want to hear from you than surrogacy, because obviously now you're, you're sharing your genetic material, putting that into the world. What is 
different for those who don't understand or what is similar? You know, educate us here. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start kind of with some of the basics with surrogacy. So in most surrogacy cases, the surrogate is a gestational carrier, meaning that she is not genetically related to the baby that she carries. The eggs would be of that of the genetic mom or of a donor. And then the sperm, of course, would be, you know, one of the dads or a donor sperm that happens too, right? And then um, it is carried by a surrogate. Most places, most of Canada, except for Quebec, has some wonky laws. Most places in the States, but not all, are pretty surrogacy friendly. And the parents, the genetic parents, the intended parents, a lot of people ask too why they're called intended parents. And it's it's just a legal term. That's kind of what they've been called. And so we lovingly refer to them as IPs kind of throughout the journey for some people that don't know. With surrogacy, you're not carrying a baby that's genetically connected to you. And the parents are the full and legal guardians, like you said earlier, from birth. It is not me adopting out my baby. They are they are the genetic parents. They are the legal and full guardians of that baby before it's even born. This is why people choose surrogacy over adoption when they are struggling with infertility. Don't get me started on the they should just adopt crowd because they can. Oh my gosh, I could I could dedicate a whole <laughs> show to that. But yeah, uh, uh, they cost about the same. The only difference is that uh, in surrogacy, it is your baby from the beginning right from birth, before birth, before that embryo is even put into a surrogate, it is your baby. Adoption, that is not the case. You do have to adopt the baby and the birth mother can change her mind. That does not happen with surrogacy. Surrogates cannot change their mind. They cannot keep the baby. Oh my goodness. I was asked so many times, I want to hear what happened on TikTok, but what if when we were not working with my cousin, we were working with different uh, gestational surrogates who PS dropped out on us, but I'm not, I'm trying not to take it personally that they ghosted <laughs> me, but when, when that was happening so many times, I had to answer the question, what if I won't name their names decides to keep the baby? I'm like, they cannot keep the baby. It's my, but not only my biological baby, there's deep legal paperwork here to protect everyone. So have you heard that as well? Oh gosh. And yes, we do not want to keep your baby. <laughs> I don't want someone else's baby. (laughs) I want my own baby, but I don't want somebody else's baby. I've also heard, well, what if the intended parents change their mind? I'm sorry. Intended parents don't pay this much money to change their mind and decide they do not want the baby. The problem is here is that we, what hits the media about surrogacy is these Severe stories that we hear largely based on contracts not being done properly, surrogacy happening in states that are not legal, aka the recent Michigan story where the parents are trying to adopt their own babies because they chose to use a surrogate in Michigan, which everybody knows is not surrogacy friendly, and they chose to take a gamble. That happens. We know that happens. That's why we tell people do not do surrogacy in Michigan or make sure you follow the laws meticulously because this is what happens, right? You know, there are stories where this happens, but they happen because people are doing things incorrectly. You know, we hear those lifetime movie stories of the turkey baster methods with no contract. That's a planned adoption. You know, if there is sex involved, that is not surrogacy, Well, I, you know, I've worked in television most of my career and more than once a TV network or production company cast, tried to cast me to help with a show they were developing about surrogates where the surrogate would have sex with the father. It is disgusting, disgusting. 
You've gotten that too, no doubt. Oh, what are these companies thinking? Like, and these networks, I say to them, guys, here's the truth. Surrogacy, egg donation, reproductive journeys in this category are so dynamic. We don't have to add anything sensational. They're already extraordinary. What did you hear? Oh, gosh. You know, it's just... The media, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I think there's lots of positive surrogacy stories, but they can be drowned out sometimes by some of these really extreme cases that really discount the experience of all the people that are legitimately, the majority, of course, that are doing this legitimately, right? This is a viable, legitimate, and acceptable way to grow your family. And it should not be stigmatized because it has been shown in a negative light somewhere. You know, Andrea, I have carried three little boys for two different families. I still stay in contact with these little boys. They are four, almost three and seven and a half months old now. I stay in contact. We've gone back to visit. I'm close with all the families. I will tell you a little secret that nobody else knows that I am currently matched for my next surrogacy with a a couple that is local to me. We are planning to be very public with our surrogacy story from start to finish. We will be announcing our next surrogacy and which will be, we'll hopefully be transferring next fall is our goal. And we plan to be so extremely open because people deserve to see the true side of surrogacy, which is that a lot of babies, 2% of babies, by the way, in the United States are born via assisted reproduction. 2% is millions of children. born via surrogacy, egg donation, assisted reproduction, you know, or or something else, right? Like this is a viable way to grow your family. And I'm so happy to be able to kind of share that in a light that shows it positively. These families are incredible. They are incredible. The infertility community is some of the strongest, resilient people I have ever met. This is a heartbreaking road. People that choose surrogacy and egg donation, first of all, I say choose lightly because there might not be a choice involved. But for couples going through infertility, this is heartbreaking. Giving up, being able to carry your baby, wanting to trust somebody, having to trust somebody to carry your baby. You want to trust that this person is doing this for the right reasons. That's why there are contracts. There are fertility clinics. There are psychological evaluations. Sometimes there are background checks or home checks. There is a list of requirements for surrogates and an even stricter list for egg donors. This needs to be better regulated, I would agree, across the board. But in most places, it is regulated and it's not something that happens in people's basements. <laughs> it's not something that happens in people's basements. And it's not something anyone comes to uh, easily because it's it's so expensive. It takes so many months, um, not just money we're talking about, physically, emotionally, relationally. It affects every part of you. I actually have done a lot of media about what not to say to IPs when working with donors or surrogates. So in my case, when I mentioned that I wasn't carrying, I was due, I was pregnant-ish, truly, not carrying my own baby, I can't tell you how many people told me how lucky I was. I would have done anything to deliver a baby. I tried for seven heartbreaking years. I did thousands of shots and treatments to try to carry to term that is very triggering to say to someone who moves on 
to a step like surrogacy, it was not my first choice. Am I grateful for it? 100%. And I say to IPs all the time, these emotions can coexist. You could be eternally grateful to people like you, Ariel, who help us bring our babies into the world and still grieve that your body couldn't do that. And that is a hard thing for others who haven't been through it to understand. So not telling people grief in general, and you know this as a social worker, and I know this with my work, telling someone who's gone through a hard time that they're lucky because blank, blank, and blank, that's not for you to decide. And it's not for you to say. And simply acknowledging that wow, that this is extraordinary, but how are you feeling? Checking in with people about it is the, is the right move. Yeah. Well, so I primarily in my counseling practice, I work with mostly intended parents. I also work with a postpartum depression, miscarriage, infant loss, all that kind of stuff as well. But I work with a lot of intended parents and you're right. It's that polarity of feelings, right? Being exceptionally grateful, but also being heartbroken because you would do anything to carry that baby. This is a hard thing to do. And it's exactly why I have a job because there is an overwhelming amount of feeling that goes along with watching somebody else carry the baby that you so desperately wanted to carry yourself. I I remember I didn't want to have a baby shower. Well, first, I didn't trust the baby would ever arrive because, you know, you have this baggage from trying so long. But I also didn't feel it was my right because I wasn't carrying. And one of my friends sat me down. I could cry telling this story. And she just said, this is your baby. Like, it's not growing in your body, but it's your baby. And we can celebrate it, Andrea. It's time to celebrate. We were due in three weeks and we just had a small brunch with close friends to clink glasses. But I was like, well, it's not in my body and I'm not pregnant. And I don't know if it's coming. And she just sat me down and kind of slapped some sense into me. But this is all the complicated emotions that that go into this. I even kind of grieved when, you know, maternity clothes shopping, like my cousin who was an angel on earth, I think all, I think Ariel, you're an angel on earth. I think all people who do this for people like me who have infertility are, are doing such deep, important work. And yet I was jealous. I was jealous that I wasn't shopping for maternity clothes. It pops up at strange times for all of us where we're triggered or we're emotional and that's all okay. I know you know that. I think you just hit the nail on the head that there is so many emotions that go here and intended parents, especially intended moms, I think can feel undeserving of these babies. And I am here to tell you that you are the most deserving of having this baby the most because you had to fight hard to get them here. And I think it is beautiful that we have the technology and the availability to have surrogates. This is important. And like, I hear the same thing. I hear people, all kinds of misconceptions about surrogates. You know, I get asked, like, I would never wreck my body to carry somebody else's baby. And I'm like, first of all, I have carried five babies in this body. I have given birth to four and nothing about it is ruined. Nothing, nothing about this body is ruined. It took me a little bit to accept that. I think like anybody who goes through postpartum sometimes, I think that can be a challenge. I am the first to admit that when I started my surrogacy journey a number of years ago, I wasn't 
as knowledgeable, right? I didn't get it. I didn't get it from the intended parent side. And I think part of the work that I want to do for allowing surrogates to research is to understand why people need assisted reproduction. Why do your intended parents need you? Because having that empathy, I think sometimes, and I think I might get some hate for this, but I cannot stand the, I'm a surrogate. What's your superpower narrative? It is not a superpower to grow a baby. (laughs) I don't know. It always rubbed me the wrong way because I'm like, I think that's so demeaning to people that, that need a surrogate. And I get the intention, but I also think I'm just a small part of the intended parent story to bring their baby here, right? I am not the be all and end all of their entire journey with their children. Well, it's interesting because I still get a bit triggered. And look, I've worked in this for a long time. I still get kind of triggered by posts saying, wow, our bodies are so strong and beautiful when people have babies. And they say, I I was able to birth this baby. Wow, women, our bodies are so powerful. I'm like, my body is plenty powerful and it couldn't birth a baby. I love that you're reclaiming, like you're taking some of this narrative and like just shedding light on a different part of it. And this leads me to my my question about what would you tell others considering being donors or gestational surrogates? What what advice or insight would you share with them? Well, I think this is a resounding thing in the surrogacy community that if you want to be a surrogate or donor, you need to research. You need to research for yourself. That does not mean calling up an agency the second you decide to be a surrogate and researching through an agency and signing up like I did. (laughs) Admittedly, right? I think we all make mistakes. I, I also transferred six months postpartum between my first and second births, and I would never do that again. I would never advise anybody to do that. I don't think it's safe for the carrier. I don't think it's safe for the baby. I would never advise that, but nevertheless, it seems to still be happening. I think people should be going to websites like the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. They should be reading the research studies on why it is important that your BMI is under a certain amount because it affects your medications and it affects your ability to get these hormones properly into your body, right? It's not because they're trying to be discriminatory about your weight. There is a reason these things are in place. There is a reason you need to be financially stable because if you are not and you are in a state where you are compensated, if you are not financially stable or you are on government assistance, you will lose your assistance. You could be charged with fraud and the intended parents could be seen as coercing you financially and it could affect their parentage. So this is important. You have to research. You have to know what you're getting into. Your family needs to be on board. Your partner, if you are partnered, needs to be on board. The number of posts I see where people are like, my husband's against surrogacy. How can I convince him to, to join? No. First of all, it's, it's not, not everybody agrees with surrogacy. And that's, I also think that's okay. I think everybody is entitled to their opinion. I don't think it's about convincing people to jump on the surrogacy bandwagon. I think it's about doing something that works for your family and having everybody on board and everybody being educated and supported. I think researching the agencies, researching the laws, understanding exactly how this process is going to work. If you are an intended parent, your first step is not finding a surrogate. Your first step is going to your reproductive endocrinologist, making your embryos, getting that on board for surrogates. Your first step is not signing up with an agency. It's doing a year of research. It's making sure that you have not just given birth. 
I signed up and I will be the first to admit, you know, this was a big mistake on my part. I signed up with an agency six months postpartum after a C-section. I transferred 11 months after a C-section on my very first surrogacy. Unfortunately, we actually lost that little girl around 15 weeks and that I don't think I should have been allowed to do. And I don't, I would advise other people not to make the same mistake I did. We know better so we can do better. We can, we can make this regulated. We can make this safe. We can do it in a way that makes everybody feel like they are being taken care of and not exploited. Yes. And that's the thing about support education and uh, regulation. This is intended to protect all parties, not just the donors and the surrogates and not just the intended parents. Can you tell me how this egg donation with my cousin involved happened? I signed up with an egg donor agency and I've, I've been a donor before. Actually, one of my previous donations, it's an open donation and she is due in like very, very, very soon. They don't know if it's a boy or girl yet. I cannot wait to meet them. We are planning to stay in contact. The baby will know exactly their story. That's another thing. People assume that yes. everything's hidden, right? It's it's not, and it doesn't it have to be, be, and it shouldn't it should be. Not be. It should not be. Research actually suggests that it is so much more beneficial for children, and they have extremely good outcomes when they understand where they came from and all the people that brought them here. So I signed up with an agency. I was ready to go. I did all my genetic testing. Now, I actually didn't meet Peter and Zoltan before like we were matched and stuff. They had picked me. Intended parents do pick their donor. It's based on looks, education, their ho- hobbies that, you know, like you would pick a, a donor, right? They're genetically linked, right? So they want somebody that looks a certain way or is a certain height or, you know, all these types of things. So they picked me and it's very funny because they did not know who I was before they matched with me. And so we had our first FaceTime call and the agency had like, they knew my name and profile from the donor, but not. So when we first FaceTimed, they were like, we Googled you. And now we are even more excited to be matched with you. That's so awesome. Well, you know how I found out my mother. Okay. This is just so weird because you were booked on my podcast before this happened. My mother, (laughs) that's so weird. My mother said, guess what? We're going for brunch with Peter and Zoltan. They're visiting for Budapest You won't, from Hungary. You won't believe why they're in town. They hadn't been, Peter had not been to Canada since my wedding 15 years ago. Oh, wow. So, uh, <laughs> and so I said, why? She said, well, it's kind of connected to your world. You won't believe it. They're working with an egg donor named Ariel. What are the odds? I said, what? <laughs> and that's where I realized it was, it was you. It was you. And they, they just said the loveliest things, of course, about you and how excited they are. And they'll be back in August. And will I meet them? Yeah. And maybe we'll all meet in person in August. And I remember you texted me, does that mean we're going to be related? Which is hilarious. I don't know. We're somehow connected, I'm sure, in some weird we're, way. We're connected more than we, we knew at the beginning. But, but with all of these donations, so it sounds like they're all open and you can stay in touch with the family. Most of them are open. Not all of them are. Some of my earlier ones are not. I do like open donation. I think if I could go back, I would prefer to do that. I mean, you know, again, right? If I if I knew then what I know now, I would have probably chosen to do more open donations, but I've done the two and I'm happy with that. And we're planning to go to Budapest actually probably in the spring. 
to go and visit them. And then they'll be back over the summer and they're planning on using a Canadian surrogate. So there's a very good chance that I will get to meet the surrogate that carries my genetic baby. So that will be wild. You know, it takes a village, right? It takes a village to raise a baby and it clearly takes a village to grow one too. Definitely true. Thank you so much, Ariel, for being on the Pregnancy Podcast. So many great nuggets of wisdom. And we look forward to following your journey along by following you at Carried With Love. Can you share how people can find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram and newly TikTok. If you're down for some drama, um, carried with love, carried.with.love. You can visit my counseling website. It's carriedwithlove.com. I'm also on Facebook too, as well with carried with love. So yeah, come and find me. It's a wild ride. Oh, it is indeed. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast. We are here to tell the story of how so many modern families are created, and we have a lot more stories coming up. So please subscribe, rate us if you haven't already, and find us wherever podcasts are found. Until next time.